You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, 20 questions. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.com. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today, I have Lauren Bailey. Hello. Ashlyn Noble. Hello. And Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Today, we're answering some common questions, most or all of which come from Google's autocomplete feature. We each took a question stem, why, where, how, or can, typed it into Google, and saw what questions came up, and then we crafted our segments around each of those search suggestions. Sorry, uh, not suggestions. Predictions. Google is very clear about that. Hmm. I will quote them, in fact. You'll notice we call these autocomplete predictions rather than suggestions, and there's a good reason for that. Autocomplete is designed to help people complete a search they were intending to do, not to suggest new types of searches to be performed. So we're doing it wrong, folks. These predictions are mostly just regurgitations of the most common searches, designed, so Google claims, to simply save users some typing. Google does not appear to customize your search autocomplete based on the data it collects about you in particular, though I can't speak to its search results. And we do know that it uses data it collects about you to serve targeted ads in the hopes that you'll click through and make them some money. The reason it doesn't use your personal data in search predictions is probably because it would simply take too long for the search suggestions to pop up. We expect autocomplete to be near instantaneous, and the more specific you want to get, the slower it's going to be. However, there is one piece of information that will be used when making predictions about what you will search. Any guesses? Your location? Yes. That's actually pretty easy for Google to get, at least approximately. Even if you have location services turned off on your phone, Google will still have a pretty good idea of what country you're in based on your IP address. So I just did a, a, a quick experiment myself. Um, I went to google.com. I was signed in to one of my Google accounts, and uh, I typed in who is, and I got the following predictions. Who is R. Kelly? Who is Ted Bundy? <laughs> who is the Night King? Who is Ted Bundy daughter? <laughs> who is Billy Porter? And who is America? <laughs> okay. Google.com signed out of all Google services. I got the exact same results. Google in incognito mode, same as above. But then I went to Google.com from Ukraine via VPN, and I got different results. When I typed who is, I got who is IP, who is America, who is domain, who is your first friend in Roblox, apparently <laughs> Ukrainians really like Roblox, who is the developer of Minecraft? Uh, that's a rather whiny gamer gator by the name of Marcus Person. And who is John Galt? Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so a a as you can see, there is some level of personalization that happens, uh, which is fair enough. Uh, but Google's tinkering isn't confined to location-based customization. 
Google's autocomplete has actually been the subject of some amount of controversy, like everything else that Google does. <laughs> Search suggestions containing explicit or offensive words are filtered out, which is understandable, perhaps, as are those that Google and the United States government deem likely related to piracy or other illegal activity. Eh. And uh, these removals are often followed by accusations of censorship. As a company... Google has unprecedented control over much of the information that we collectively have access to. When you think about it, it's kind of shocking. I think talking about censoring autocomplete is a bit of a stretch. <laughs> These are, after all, suggestions, and you can just type in the search you want to search, and Google will serve up the information, unless it has been removed for DMCA compliance or because the government asked it to remove it for other reasons. So, talking about censoring autocomplete... I'm not too worried about that, especially when Google is, as always, up to some truly ugly stuff. Uh, their close collaboration with both the Chinese and American governments to enforce state censorship is well-documented. Uh, there was even a case in 2013 when the Swedish Language Council added a new word to the Swedish lexicon that would translate roughly as ungoogleable. <laughs> they defined it as something that cannot be found with any search engine. And Google immediately objected, insisting that ungoogleable could only refer to something that could not be found on their proprietary search engine. The council reprimanded Google for their attempt to control the Swedish language, but, fearing a suit from the tech giant, they removed the word from their lexicon. And of course, there's no reason to confine our criticisms of Google to matters of censorship. Google is a major war profiteer, devoting considerable resources to its work as a so-called defense contractor. Until this year, Google had a contract with the Pentagon to develop software allowing drones to more accurately identify human beings. While Google recently announced, after many of its software engineers and other employees objected, uh, that it would not renew that particular contract, it still has several defense contracts ongoing. But, as I'm prone to do, I've wandered pretty far afield of our topic today, so uh, let's get back on track. We're each going to cover five questions that came up in Google's autocomplete. Uh, some of us have tweaked our lists a little bit. Uh, we're not just taking the top five, because a lot of them are quite bad and would make for a boring podcast. But these are... All things that came up when typing our search stem into Google and maybe hitting a few extra keystrokes. So let's start off with Lauren. Lauren, how many grams in a pound? Well, Jim, I'm glad you asked. There are 453.592 grams in a pound. This answer does assume that we are using the avoirdupois pound, which is 16 ounces, and not the troy pound, which is 12 ounces. The avoirdupois system was first commonly used in the 13th century, and its standardization was last updated in 1959. It was originally used to measure wool and other trade goods. Its name literally means goods of weight. The troy pound is first firmly attested to in 1390, though it could have been used as early as 1307. It is now used mainly to weigh precious metals and gems, though it was originally used in the apothecary's system of weights. Both are vastly inferior to the metric system. <laughs> Come at me, Americans. Ashlyn, where did pizza originate? So flatbread with stuff on it is pretty much as old as agriculture. Uh, there's evidence for it even back to the Neolithic age. Wow. Uh, so pizza's really old. But the word pizza's first documented use was in Gaeta in central Italy in 997 AD. Uh, and then the word spread to the rest of Italy. 
That's fascinating, because it wouldn't have had tomato sauce. Yeah, no, there mm-hmm. was definitely no tomatoes involved then. It didn't spread to the crust. <laughs> <laughs> the first modern pizza with tomato was developed in Naples in the 18th century, so well after contact with the Americas. It was mostly eaten in Italy until after World War II, when vets spread it around the world. Truly the greatest generation. <laughs> Pizza was introduced to Canada in the late 1950s, around the time my parents were born. So there's an entire section in the Wikipedia article on the origins of pizza dedicated to pizza in Canada, which is strange. And it comes even before the section on pizza in the US. That's very surprising. That was interesting. Maybe that's just alphabetical, but I don't know. Uh, apparently, pizza getty is a thing in Quebec, which like was enough to warrant <laughs> a giant section in this article. Okay, um, so you you want to complain New York versus Chicago style? <laughs> so, Quebec style says, "Hold my beer." <laughs> yeah, either you take half a pizza and put it on a plate next to a pile of spaghetti, or you actually make a pizza with spaghetti that is underneath the cheese layer. Mm-hmm. It's wild. Spaghetti underneath yeah, the cheese. Yeah, pizzaghetti. And apparently it's like a thing you can get in like all family diners in Quebec. Wow. I, I've i never heard of that. Why would you come up with that? Like both all are I can Italian Im- foods? I guess. All I can imagine is in a kitchen, they were really rushed. And one <laughs> night the pasta bowl <laughs> fell and dumped pasta all over the pizza. You got peanut butter on my chocolate. Well, you got chocolate in my peanut butter. Bravissimo. Two great yeah. tastes that taste great together. <laughs> so, uh, also, Pizza Pops are Canadian, something I thought I would mention. Do they not exist elsewhere? They uh, do in a limited capacity, but they're for sure like a, a really Canadian thing. They were invented okay. here and are less popular elsewhere. But here it's like everybody eats Pizza Pops after school if you're a kid. I've never had one in my life. Really? What? I was vegan 14. when I was 13. Yeah. So oh, wow. Okay. That would that explain it. I was definitely eating Pizza Pops before I was 13, though. I just find it fascinating that pizza wasn't introduced to Canada until, like, my parents were born. That's wild to me. My parents were born in 55 and 59, and that's when pizza arrived in Canada? That's nuts. (laughs) Yeah. Another interesting Canadian pizza fact, Boston Pizza is one of the most successful Canadian franchises of all time. Started in Canada and has spread all over the place, and they have like a million restaurants. That's fascinating that it's a Canadian restaurant named after an American city (laughs) and an Italian food. Yep. So pizza did originate in Italy as we know it today, but people have been putting stuff on flatbread for literally ever. That just makes sense, really. It is the easiest way to eat. Laura, can I start a sentence with because? Yes. Yes, you can. Contrary to what all of our elementary school teachers told us, yes, you can start a sentence with because, but only if you finish that thought of the sentence. So, a sentence that says something like, because I needed money, I sold my body to science, (laughs) is a complete accurate sentence and, and grammatically correct. However, because I need money is not a sentence. So all of our grade school teachers taught us the wrong thing because they wanted to prevent us from having sentence fragments all over the place. They wanted to force us into finishing our thoughts and clauses. Hmm. Is it still considered more correct to do like, I sold my body to science because I needed money? No, it's not. And as writersdigest.com stated, the way that I had said it, because I needed money, I sold my body to science, can often be more impactful mm-hmm. than the other way around. Yeah, for sure. 
Cool. Lauren, I thought of you when I came up with that answer. And so (laughs) I figured I would address it. Is there anything that I missed? Impactful is not a word. Whatever. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I get for asking the grammar police over here. I don't know what you're going to do with that money once you've already sold your body to science. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe you get it back. I don't know. Like uh, when you go to Hilltop Research and do the studies. Exactly. I leased my body to science. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Hey, Jim. Why is the sky blue? A classic. Yeah, it's the eternal question, right? But really think about it for a second. Like, the sky isn't an object, right? (laughs) There's There's no firmament. And air seems pretty transparent so it's ha- like a lot of objects right as in the sky <laughs> it is, is a made bunch up of objects of a bunch of objects yeah because it is a bunch of objects <laughs> <laughs> so if the sky isn't like one thing and air is transparent how can the sky have a color why why doesn't it all just look like outer space you know the the color out of space so i guess that that begets the question what does it mean for something to have a color Anyone? Those are the wavelengths of light that are being bounced back at us and not being absorbed by the object? Yeah, Mm -hmm. that's exactly right. So light from uh, some source, usually the sun. I mean, (laughs) definitely the sun ultimately. It's where all light nearby really comes from, more or less. You know, it just gets stored Sometimes. Well, I mean, the energy gets stored. It's it's a whole thing. Never mind. So light will bounce off objects and uh, objects will absorb some colors and they will refract others. White light, of course, is made up of, of a pretty wide range of colors, but the sky isn't uh, reflecting light. Exactly. What you're seeing when you look up at the daytime sky and you see that blue color, what you're seeing is called diffuse sky radiation that's caused by a process called Rayleigh scattering. It discovered, believe it or not, by a gentleman by the name of Rayleigh <laughs> in the 19th century. Basically, when light from the sun strikes molecules in the air, that light has a chance of bouncing off in a random direction. So, as I mentioned, this white light is made up of rays or photons of a bunch of different colors, a bunch of different wavelengths. Mm-hmm. About 400 to about 700 nanometers, if I remember correctly, uh, is the uh, the wavelengths that make up the visible spectrum. And certain wavelengths have a greater likelihood of being scattered than others. Blue light sits at the high frequency end of the visual spectrum, while red light sits at the low frequency end. High frequency light also means short wavelength light. Light with a short wavelength is scattered more effectively by atmospheric molecules than long wavelength light. So when white light, a mixture of wavelengths, hits the atmosphere, the red photons with their long wavelengths tend to just proceed straight ahead. Most of the blue photons also find their way to Earth eventually, but many of them get bounced around in the atmosphere for a while, ricocheting here to there, making this blue light appear to be coming from everywhere in the sky, even though it's actually just coming from the sun. It's just bounced around like a Plinko ball. So this means, actually, that ultraviolet light, which has an even shorter wavelength than blue light, is scattered even more strongly. If we could see in the ultraviolet spectrum, the sky would look more ultraviolet than blue. So when you look at the sun, uh, I mean, don't. That (laughs) that picture of Trump is pretty funny, but don't. Uh, When you look at the sun, it looks white, 
ish, uh, because you're seeing all of Roy G. Biv, with uh, a little less Biv than usual. But when you look at the rest of the sky, you're seeing all that remaining Biv that got lost on its way from the sun to your eyes. And it has just found its way back. Sky full of Biv. Who knew? I always thought it was because the water reflected into the... In, in, into the sky? Mm-hmm. That That's a common thing that you hear, like, in when elementary school. Yeah. 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 I think I heard, like, later on, like, the nitrogen or something reflected it back. I don't know. So nitrogen molecules comprise the vast majority of the molecules in our atmosphere, and it is responsible for a lot of Rayleigh scattering. Okay. Jim, was this just an excuse to practice your optics homework for the MCAT? (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I don't think they test too much Rayleigh scattering uh, on the MCAT, but I guess we'll see. Lauren, how to make slime? (laughs) (laughs) yeah oh man and now i understand why jem was so upset earlier (laughs) these aren't questions (laughs) yeah jem sent me a message saying these aren't actually questions (laughs) according to homesciencetools.com you can make a non-newtonian fluid which is a slime a goop or a gack depending on if you were raised on nickelodeon or not (laughs) with the following recipe Mix one ounce, 28 grams, of white glue in a quarter cup, 59 milliliters water in a bowl. Add food coloring for non-boring slime. Add 59 milliliters of borax, which is sodium tetraborate, and stir very slowly. After it comes together, you knead the slime together and it will become less sticky as the compounds begin to bond. Refrigerate the slime in an airproof container to keep it from growing mold. Basically, you're making a polymer. That is how to make slime. Don't lick your hands afterward. That is a very bad idea. But you didn't mention that you could add like glitter and foam and shit. That's the best part. Also, scents. Like, it tends to smell pretty bad. When I said non-boring slime? Yeah. Mix in your fun additives like it was a cold stone creamery. I don't care. (laughs) Please don't put in cold stone creamery (laughs) additives. (laughs) We really don't want to entice children to eat this slime. (laughs) Cotton candy pieces, waffle cone bits. Mmm. Ashlyn, where is your liver? (laughs) It's eight o'clock. Do you know where your liver is? Uh, It's located somewhere inside your body. Thank you. <laughs> we don't know where. Specific. Does it also wander? Or is that just yeah, that's just the wounds? <laughs> yeah, wandering liver. So, in most people, the liver sits above the diaphragm in the upper right-hand portion of your abdomen, beside and above your stomach. It's kind of cozied up to it in like a yin yang sort of deal. It overlaps a little bit with your lungs, uh, so the lungs kind of go behind it, and the liver is a little bit uh, in front of it, and your heart is just above it. It is protected by your ribs, and it's a pretty huge organ. It's about the size of a football. So a lot of people don't realize how big it is and that it's so far up in your body. CFL football or NFL football? I don't freaking know. Inflated? Or not? (laughs) (laughs) Tom Brady style or not? About the size of football. Mine would be a big football, and someone Laura's size might be a small football. (laughs) I don't know which one is bigger. (laughs) CFL is uh, bigger. It's the Cirrhosis Football League. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Uh, There are beer cup snakes involved, so... (laughs) Laura, can I give my dog gravel? (laughs) No, you used the flower thing from the other episode. I don't even have a dog. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if you did have a dog, you might want to know the answer to this. That's true. 
So according to multiple vet websites, yes, you can, in fact, give your dog Gravol or Benadryl or a couple of other medications. It is fine to do that. Like you would expect, considering that most dogs are smaller than most adult people, you want to make sure that you're giving them a smaller dose. But yeah, it is safe to give it to them. As far as I can tell, you can use your standard over-the-counter medication. It doesn't need to be prescribed from a vet, a special veterinary formula or something. But you should always get advice from your vet before giving them medication, particularly if you're giving human-based medication to your animal. Now, there are some medications that you can't give to your animals. Um, One thing to note is that a lot of animal medications are very similar, if not exactly the same as human medications. There are some that are a little bit different, but a lot of the compounds are the same sorts of things. I know dogs don't do well with vitamin chocolate. (laughs) Really any kind of... (laughs) Yeah, any kind of thing like that. But as as far as pharmaceuticals go, uh, dogs can have Tylenol in small amounts, but you do need to be very careful. Just like in people, large amounts of Tylenol can be very damaging to the liver. Mm -hmm. Um, it It can be even more so in the dogs, again, because of the differing metabolism and the smaller size for a lot of them. So you want to be careful. You should never give Tylenol to a cat, though. It will be very, very poisonous to them. As for Advil, though, that is out for dogs. So don't give your dog Advil, even if they... Any kind of like NSAID or just Advil is particularly bad? I only looked up ibuprofen. So that's what's in Advil or Motrin or Midol and a few other types of things like that. And it appears to be because one of the things that Advil does is it's an anti-inflammatory. So it inhibits some of the the enzymes that cause the inflammatory process, which is great if you have an injury and you don't want it to swell up or be as painful. However, there's a couple of types of enzymes in that category that it appears to inhibit. So it inhibits the ones that cause all that extra inflammation, but it also inhibits ones that encourage the kidneys to function properly Mm, and the gastrointestinal tract to work. So again, in a dog that metabolizes things a bit differently on a much smaller scale, they're going to have a much bigger problem. So it does seem likely then that other non-steroidal anti-inflammatories would have similar effects. Mm -hmm. So stay away. Yeah. Jim, why are plants green? (laughs) <laughs> I, promise, color I promise that these won't all be color questions. <laughs> no, they get more depressing. Don't oh, worry. Good. When I said I tweaked the list, that was specifically why. Otherwise, the next one would have been, why are fire trucks red? <laughs> no, you should have done that. That would have been great. That would have been awesome, Gem. It's way better. But then I wouldn't get to talk about the depressing stuff. Exactly. <laughs> so uh, we got through some of the physics of light. Um with the last why question, so this one should be a little bit uh, easier. Plants are green because they contain chlorophyll, which is green. Uh, chlorophyll is a pigment that's essential for photosynthesis, a- at least in uh, plants, allowing plants to absorb light and convert its radiant energy into chemical energy, which they store in the form of carbohydrates. Chlorophyll is green because, while it does a great job absorbing light across most of the visible spectrum, it's best at the Roy and Biv portions, and doesn't do such a great job with that middle initial. So the green (laughs) light is reflected, and that's what we see. Chlorophyll isn't the only pigment used to capture sunlight this way, but it's one that plants have largely stuck with, as it absorbs a significant portion of the spectrum. Though accessory pigments in some plants are also present that absorb uh, smaller portions uh, and kind of make up a bit of the deficit there. Other phototrophs use a variety of pigments, either in place of or in addition to chlorophyll, including carotenes, xanthophylls, and fucoxanthin. Red algae, for example, grows in deeper waters that tend to filter out much of the low-frequency part of the visible spectrum. 
So red algae uses phycoerythrae to instead absorb the blue-green light that is able to make its way into the depths. Cool. Lauren, how to tie a tie? (laughs) (laughs) The most popular answer is to use a Windsor knot. I am hard-pressed, though, to see the difference between a Windsor, a half-Windsor, a four-in-hand, or a simple knot. The difference might be the dimple direction? Like, a simple knot would look real bad. Half-Windsors are so lopsided Mm -hmm. and teeny. All right. For those listening at home, you're going to go want to get your tie so you can click along with Mitch. This is a terrible question for an audio medium. What's wrong with you? That's why I picked it. Okay. Oh, goodness. I spent half my lunch hour watching tie videos. (laughs) Seriously. Start with the wide end of the tie on the right and the small end on the left. The tip of the small end should rest slightly above your belly button. This will vary depending on your height and the length and thickness of your tie, or if you were president of the United States. You are only going to move the active or wide end of the tie. Step two, wide end up over the small end to the left. Step three, up into the neck loop from underneath. Step four, down into the left. Step five, around the back of the small end to the right. Jem is miming along and he just undid and said oops. Step six, up to the center towards the neck loop. Step seven, through the neck loop and down to the right. Everyone still with me? No. Step eight, across the front to the left. Step nine, up into the neck loop from underneath. Step ten, down through the loop you've just created in the front. Step eleven, tighten the knot by pulling down on the wide end. Slide the knot up and adjust. It's simple, right? There are diagrams on the internet, howtotieatie.com, and there are much more exciting knots. Remember, when you're done wearing the tie, to only loosen it a little and hang it up still tied so that you never have to remember again. <laughs> what are you talking about? <laughs> oh my, gonna ruin that tie. I put that in there simply for that reaction. Oh god. We've gotten to a point where we just push Jem's buttons. You, you push Jem's buttons. The house I used to have with my ex-husband had a tie rack on the closet door. And he had a little diagram on the door for how to tie a Windsor knot for the twice a year he had to wear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, at least he, he was preparing for things. He got a system in place, right? I put the system in place. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm sure it's still there. Got tired of tying it yourself? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Speaking of tie-wearing occasions, Ashlyn, where does the name Archie come from? So I assume this was a very new appearance on the predictions from Google. This this mm-hmm. also popped up in in mine in the form of why Archie? <laughs> <laughs> why Jughead? Forsyth. Uh, so in case you live in a non-royal bubble, the uh, newest heir to the throne, seventh in line, it was just named Archie Harrison. Uh, and so people are wondering, where does the name Archie come from? And it's not Archibald, it is Archie. So uh, Archie is, of course, a diminutive of Archibald which is a name of Germanic origin uh, and means genuine, bold, or brave. Elements of the name are urchan, with an original meaning of genuine or precious, and bald, which means bold. So there were a lot of, like, kings and stuff in Anglo-Saxon history that had bald names. Not as many as with Ethel, which means noble. (laughs) Well, there was Ethelbald. There was. (laughs) He was boldly noble. (laughs) Where no noble had gone before. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So 
It has kind of an interesting history of being introduced and then fading out of fashion. So, um, it, again, it started in Old High German as Urchenbald or Urkenbold or Urkenbald. Uh, and then it got so borrowed into Old French. Uh, and then it sort of died out in the Germanic languages. And then it got reintroduced uh, from the Old French. The form Archibald became particularly popular among Scottish nobility in the later medieval to early modern periods. And then it started to be used as a surname and can now be found uh, in Nova Scotia and Scotland as a surname. So that is where the name Archie came from. Oh, and it was also um, a really popular first name in Scotland. It was actually in the top 20 until the 1930s. But now it is looked upon as a stuffy, aristocratic name. But, of course, it's coming back just like a lot of older names. Old man names. And, yep, old man names, old women names. Yeah. <laughs> right. Laura, can I have sex during Ramadan? You probably can. <laughs> I can, too. I'm pretty sure we all can here. But I'm also pretty sure that none of us are practicing Muslims. So I don't think this question really applies to <laughs> us here. So the better question is, can an observant practicing Muslim have sex during the fasting time during Ramadan? So for anybody who happens to be unfamiliar, uh, we are now in Ramadan, the month of Ramadan. And so um, Muslims observing Ramadan are to fast, which means they're abstaining from food and beverages and also sex from dawn until dusk, essentially. But during the night hours, sex is good. Yeah. So the fast is only during the daylight hours. Mm -hmm. So once the, the sun sets, there's the traditional um, large meal, the iftar, um, where they break the fast and they consume beverages and, and whatnot. And, and then there's praying and, and ceremonies and things like that as well. And so that, that is not, even though it's during the holy month of Ramadan, it's not during the fast there. So sex during that time is totally fine, um, as it would be any other time. It is not allowed during the daytime hours. So if you do break the fast with sex during the daytime hours, there are some well-established acts of repentance that you can do. The first thing that you can do is you can free a slave. <laughs> okay. Hopefully that is not available to anybody because there aren't any, well, like fingers crossed. And this goes in the order of availability as well. So first and foremost is if there is a, free, a slave to be freed, you should free that slave. If that's not available, then you can fast for two consecutive months instead of just one. Oh, God. <laughs> Especially during the summer. That's rough. Yeah. Yeah. And if that's not available or feasible for you, then you should feed 60 people who are in need. Doable? Yeah. Like feed them a cracker? No. And does it have to be feed a feast? Them. I, I'm not sure it would need to be a feast, but it should be something substantial so that they are no longer hungry. So... First of all, you shouldn't do it if you are practicing. Second of all, if you if it does happen, then there those are the list of things that you can do to sort of make up for it. So when there's 16 hours of sunlight, you have the remaining eight hours to sleep and eat and have sex and pray, pray and do all your Ramadan ceremonies and stuff. Holy moly! Yeah, it is. It is quite impressive. For people living in uh, parts of the world where the day is not um, equally divided in daylight and and uh, nighttime, mm -hmm. that it is quite a feat. I, it is quite impressive how people do it. Honestly, the thing that is most impressive is the no water part yeah. of it. 
that is, um, that must be very, very difficult. I learned a cool thing about uh, practicing Muslims who live like above the Arctic Circle. Mm-hmm. So if you're living somewhere where it would like literally be 24 hours, you can instead choose to go based on the daylight hours at Mecca. That makes huh. sense. I thought that was interesting. It's like they're mm-hmm. not going to actually make you die <laughs> to yeah. observe this. Yeah. And I mean, there's lots of exceptions for people who are who are ill or who are infirm or who are on Children. a period or whatever. So. Yeah. Yeah. And Islam traditionally has lo- lots of exceptions to, uh, you know, we as outsiders, we often view it as a very rigid doctrinaire religion. But there are lots of exceptions to a lot of its rules about praying, about the Hajj and like that. And even um, even halal, like you can break mm-hmm. halal if, you know, you're in danger or you're yeah. sick and you need, you know, like. Yeah, the, the rules are never designed to no, no. actively make people ill or yeah. put them, you know, near death or something like that. The, the rules are generally, if you can, you should. Mm-hmm. But if you can't, and we recognize there are a lot of rules that you can't, here are some alternatives for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious. I, I had heard, I was aware of the no food and no drink during daylight hours. Um, I had not heard about the no sex. Is there any other behavior that is normally permitted that is prohibited during the fast? I don't know. But now that you say that, I'm wondering if things like smoking or something like that would be. Yeah, that's definitely not allowed. And I would need to check on this, but I would assume anything that seems kind of like extra. Jim? Why are polar bears endangered? Oh. Right? Colors would have been better. Well, they're not. Not quite. Not yet. Uh, but they are vulnerable, which is only barely a step up from endangered. And the answer is climate change, folks. The majority of a polar bear's diet is made up of seal. Since they hunt exclusively on sea ice, they're thus only able to hunt in the winter. In fact, their dependence on sea ice actually classifies them as a marine mammal, along with whales, dolphins, and seals. For the rest of the year, they live off of their fat reserves. Unfortunately, as the freeze comes later and later each year, that rest of the year is getting longer and longer, meaning that polar bears have less time to build up their fat reserves during the winter, fat reserves that have to last them longer and longer with each passing year. In 2004, ice flows in Hudson's Bay were breaking up three weeks earlier in the year than they were in 1984. Over that same 20-year period, the polar bear population in the region declined from a little under 1,200 individuals to 935, a 22% drop. Habitat loss is also why we're seeing more and more bears making for human settlements to scavenge, where they face additional threats from us. The U.S. Geological Survey has predicted that in the next 30 years, the polar bear population will have declined by more than 60%. All right, let's get away from the buzzkill. (laughs) Oh, don't worry, I'll be back. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, Lauren, how to write a cover letter? (laughs) You're the worst. This doesn't sound better. Well, this is my wheelhouse. This is what I mm-hmm. do for a living, honey. So let's write a cover letter. There are five things that a cover letter should do. Number one, it should introduce you. Number two, it should, you should mention the job if you're applying for something that's advertised or the kind of job if you are applying on speculation. Don't worry, it's not a 15-point list like the tie. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, show that your skills and experience match the requirements for the position. Number four, encourage the reader to continue onto your resume. Number five, you finish with a call to action like, 
asking for an interview or meeting. You'd be surprised to know how often people forget that. They just say thank you. No, ask for an interview. So you're to do all this on one page at most, and with no more than three paragraphs. I tend to lump steps one and two into the first paragraph, make step three its own paragraph, and finish up with a short paragraph for steps four and five. Try your hardest to get the name and position of the person who will be reading your cover letter and address the letter appropriately. If not, address it to the hiring manager. To whom it may concern is too general and too played out, and dear sir or madame is not gender inclusive and it's way too stuffy. Speaking of stuffy, tailor the language of your letter to the language in the job advert. Explain how you meet the specific skills that they list and use a document template that fits the professionalism required for the position. I like to use block style, fully justified with a six-point space between 11-point paragraphs in a serif font. Most word processing programs have templates that you can use for formal letters. Do not center your name and contact information at the top like you would see on a resume. Put them in block style in line with the text above the address for the recipient. Do not make up a letterhead for yourself. You can use a letterhead if you are applying on behalf of an established business, like for a consulting or to answer a request for proposal. Other quick tips? Tailor your cover letter to the job and company. Do not create a generic cover letter and include it with every resume. That's tacky. Do not tell the recipient how many other jobs you are applying for. (laughs) (laughs) Do write a cover letter as an email, if allowed. Do realize that cover letters may be archaic, but they are the best way of presenting yourself and standing out from however many applicants are out there. I hate cover letters so much. Mm Mm-hmm. I have applied for many, many jobs in my career, and that is the worst part. Mm-hmm. It's so much. If you need to, I can write you the next one. <laughs> Ashlyn, can you tell us about your cover letter from the bakery? So the bakery that was just down the street from our house was hiring somebody for like emergency holiday work. And I applied on a whim thinking there was no possible way that they would hire me and my cover letter was an email that said i live just down the street so even if it snows i will still be able to walk to work and i really like holiday music so i will not get tired of your christmas music playing and sometimes i cater stuff uh but i've never worked in a commercial kitchen and you should hire me (laughs) and they did (laughs) they did they were real desperate Uh, I have conducted well over a hundred interviews and read uh, probably an order of magnitude more cover letters than that by this time in my career. One piece of advice that I have is don't try to be too clever in your cover letter. Don't like, don't try to make it fun for me. Um, (laughs) So don't do what I did. (laughs) You know, like honestly, like that kind of casual for a, for a software dev position, that would be a little a little bit weird. Mm-hmm. As I said, go for the professionalism required of the position. <laughs> but like jokey, sarcasm, that kind of stuff uh, often does not fly. And um, do a spell check. Oh, God, I forgot that and, part. Yes. And, and have somebody proofread it. Mm-hmm. Um, we, <laughs> we had somebody apply one time who said he was familiar with all of the operating systems. Windows, Apple, Mac, and... Unix Ubanton, uh, which is uh, (laughs) not a thing. Um, uh, I assume they meant uh, Unix and then 
uh, the Ubuntu distro of Linux, or maybe they confused Unix and Linux uh, as as the same thing, uh, which is understandable for somebody who's, I guess, not a software dev. But, uh, uh, yeah. Unix Ubanton. Jim, oh dear. would you throw out a cover letter if they didn't use the Oxford comma? No, of course not. And in fact, one of the things that uh, both Brendan and I, when we worked at the same place, uh, pushed for was having uh, people separate from those who are going to be making interview and hiring decisions Mm -hmm. uh, go through the resumes and remove identifying information uh, related to things like uh, race, uh, religion, and uh, gender just to to try to avoid any uh, implicit bias uh, on on the part of those making the interview decisions and to correct any like minor errors or grammatical uh, things like that because what ends up happening is things that are just stylistic changes end up de facto discriminating against people who don't speak English as a first yes. language but would have no problem actually doing the job and we mm-hmm. want to avoid that those policies that we instituted were immediately reversed as soon as we were not in charge of hiring anymore. <laughs> oh boy. I'm wondering how that would work with my resume. Like, not that I've had to apply for many jobs, but half of my resume is like volunteerism with things like queer choirs and yeah. the skeptics and stuff. So, right. So, um, you know, it varied. It was usually as simple as removing references. Uh, th- there was a lot of like women's sports leagues or whatever mm-hmm. that would just have like be genericized in some way. Um, you know, you could say like we could say science organization or whatever, but that's not really on you. That's more an initiative that that we undertook as, as mm-hmm. potential employers. Yeah, I just feel like my resume would be half blank if they tried to <laughs> well, take it. Out wouldn't all be their blank. Effort. What like what, we we you wouldn't just take put anything. Generic out. We just, choir X. Yeah, instead of community choir. Like, yeah, we call it yeah. a community choir or or what have you. Ashlyn, where is Zer? <laughs> <laughs> So this was the number one prediction that came up when I put in where, and I have no idea what Zer is <laughs> and did not know any context in this. So obviously I had to put it in here because obviously so many people want to know about Zer. Apparently, Zer is uh, to be found uh, on IO in the uh, Giant's Reach. Cool. So if you want to find Zer, that's where to find it. Io the the moon. Uh, yes, I believe oh, so. Okay, that that is my understanding. That is the only Io that I know. Zer, agent of the nine, uh, is a vendor in a game called Destiny Two. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so Destiny Two appears to be a game where you zoom around the universe. Uh, nope, nope. I said appears <laughs> to be. <laughs> yeah, it is an online what's called a loot shooter. You can think of it like EverQuest, but for first person shooters. I thought I saw spaceships. Uh, they're like it's sci-fi, but you don't like get in a spaceship and drive the spaceship around. Really, mm, that's disappointing. It's all like uh, I saw some like children playing shooting. it the other weekend, so I, I thought I had a handle on it as an old person, but no. <laughs> Sorry so anyway, he he appears on the weekends between one p.m. Eastern on Friday and one p.m. Eastern on Tuesday, and his location changes every week. And he apparently has lots of good stuff that you can buy for fancy currency, mm. and so. Uh, even though his location appears on the map generally, it's a pretty large area, so you still need to search for him. So where is Zer will take you to whereisxur.com, and you can then find his right. exact location so that you can it. get in there. Yeah. So <laughs> where is Zer? That is the most popular <laughs> predictive text for where. Nice. All right. 
Uh, Laura, this is a weird question. <laughs> I wouldn't, it would never occur to me to ask this. Can I wear black to a wedding? Right? This was my question. It's 2019. <laughs> Why is this a predictive question? Like, there? I can see, can I wear white to a wedding? That would make more sense as a question to me. The answer it, to that is no. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that one maybe would make sense, but that one is a strict no. Mm-hmm. No, never. Never, never, unless <laughs> like, you are the one getting white. married. If it's a white pattern, fine. A lot of places will say no, That's even true. like florals or even pastels that could come off as white in different lighting. Just stay away from it. So, and don't even try the whole, it's bone or ivory. (laughs) Nope, nobody's buying that. Nope, nope, nope. Ashlyn, I think we should have had all of our guests dress in white and just us in color. That would have looked so cool. (gasps) Yeah, it would have been like exactly opposite (laughs) from our policy of wear whatever you want. (laughs) So the answer is yes, generally. Speaking of someone whose bridesmaids wore black to the wedding on purpose, lovely little black dresses, thank you. Yes, you can wear black to a wedding. (laughs) (laughs) We've reached the supersonic portion of the evening. Yes, you can wear black to a wedding. What I found even more incredible than this being a predictive search term was that there were numerous articles dated from this year and last year talking about this. Mm -hmm. I can't believe this. I expected old stuff or, Mm -hmm. you know, like 60s, 70s, like very old, not 2018 people asking, is it okay if I wear black to a wedding? I I grew up with no white, no black, no red. That's interesting. Don't outshine the bride. The only thing I ever grew up with was the no white. Like black was, I didn't even really grow up with an all black is for, for funerals thing. That wasn't part of my family either. Like black was fine, but you should wear nice clothes to a wedding. That's what I grew up with, nice clothes. Mm -hmm. So yes, while there seems to have been many, many decades of debate, it is generally agreed upon that black is not just for funerals. You can, in fact, wear it to a wedding. You should probably dress it up with a little bit of color to make it seem a little festive. (laughs) And also don't wear like your shortest little black dress. Maybe choose something a little longer if you are going to be wearing a black dress. But if you're going to a Hindu wedding, do not wear black. Mm. That is considered an inauspicious color. Uh, and white uh, is considered a, a color of mourning. So for Hindu weddings, do not wear white or black. Generally something quite colorful and lots of jewelry is the appropriate dress. So many rules. As a kid, I never went to weddings unless they were my father's. <laughs> you only went to two of those. That still makes the sentence correct. <laughs> <laughs> All of my clothing is black. I have to wear black to a wedding. Now you know. That's why you have a wife whose closet you can borrow from. (laughs) I mostly borrow your black dresses. (laughs) We had every variation at our wedding, I believe, including the shortest black dress you own. Oh, somebody's always going to wear the shortest black dress they own. Like, (laughs) what's a wedding if somebody doesn't wear that, really? Also, somebody is definitely going to turn their tie into a headpiece at some point. (laughs) Mostly what I remember about wedding clothes was how much my brother hated them. Mm. Like, I think he was 17 at the time when we went to our cousin's wedding. And he immediately, as soon as we got into the venue, like, untucked his shirt and undid everything and, like, just looked so sloppy. (laughs) (laughs) Mom was horrified. It was great. Well, and now that things like suits aren't that common, like, they're making a bit of a comeback, but they just aren't. It, It was the one time for a lot of people, a lot of men, they had to stuff themselves into this, this stiff clothing as opposed to t-shirts and jeans or something like that. So 
the first time I got married, my father wore the sport coat that he wore to his own wedding in 1979. Nice. <laughs> is, is that his wedding sport coat? Not anymore. He didn't or have was it, it at the time? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Jem, why does asparagus make your pee stink? The fact that asparagus has a significant impact on the smell of urine has been remarked upon by learned men for centuries. Including <laughs> Austin Powers. Was Pliny the Elder involved? <laughs> uh, no, it doesn't, it doesn't go that far. I was not able to find references that far back. But in uh, 1781, for example, Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter to the Royal Academy of Brussels remarking upon this very thing. Quote, A few stems of asparagus eaten shall give our urine a disagreeable odor and a pill of turpentine no bigger than a pea shall bestow on it the pleasing smell of violets. And why should it be thought more impossible in nature to find means of making a perfume of our wind than of our water? No, you did not mishear that bit at the end. This is an excerpt from a fairly long letter that Ben Franklin uh, wrote to the Royal Academy of Brussels trying to convince them to offer a prize to any scientist who could devise a way to make his farts smell better. This uh, letter is rather famous in scientific circles and has been given the nickname Fart Proudly. <laughs> Boy, this segment got off track quickly. Uh-huh. When it comes to asparagus, the culprit is asparagusic acid. An, <laughs> an acid, you might guess from the name, we have only found in asparagus. Asparagusic acid contains a heterocyclic disulfide, a functional group containing sulfur, uh, two sulfurs, in fact, in a uh, cycle of five atoms. <laughs> disulfide. Asparagusic acid itself is not volatile. That is to say, it does not immediately <laughs> vaporize in most cases. Uh, so uh, that means that asparagus itself doesn't stink to high heaven. But when broken down by the body, several highly volatile sulfur-containing compounds result, and the odor can be detected in the urine of people who have consumed asparagus as little as 15 minutes earlier. Wow. <laughs> this is actually a little bit complicated, though, because some people don't smell it after they eat asparagus. And for a while, scientists were divided. Um, do these people not produce these compounds upon digesting asparagusic acid? Or are they somehow just unable to smell them? Evidence is mixed, but it seems likely that most, but perhaps not all, do produce volatile sulfur compounds after consuming asparagus, but some are simply unable to smell it. A study by 23andMe found that this perceptual difference is caused by a single point mutation in the genes responsible for olfaction. Cool. Hmm. It was actually my understanding that there were two genes involved, so not everybody makes it and not everybody smells it, and then some people are both and some people are neither. That that does appear to be correct. However, the vast majority of people do make it, mm -hmm. and if somebody doesn't detect uh, a strange odor in their urine after eating asparagus, it is much more likely that it is because they simply can't smell it. Oh, okay. Because I've never noticed it, so I must have... You must have Not one or the other. Gene, yeah. yeah. <laughs> cool. You're a freak. <laughs> Lauren, how to boil eggs? <laughs> no. <laughs> Speaking of smells. <laughs> Speaking of sulfur. Did you not try anything other than how to? No, it was just how. These were the ones that made the cut. Mm -hmm. The rest were bad. For hard-boiled eggs, place your eggs in a pot and cover them with cold water until there is about an extra half egg height of water above the eggs. Lengthwise or heightwise? Like they are going to be laying on their side. Okay. And so that extra, mm, about an inch above the egg. 
How big an egg do you have? A very large one. <laughs> bring the pot to a boil over medium-high heat. If Ashlyn's going to get pedantic, say, bring the water in the pot to a boil <laughs> over medium-high heat. Measuring the sides of the pot like this. <laughs> and then cover. Remove it from the heat. That's the pot. And set aside for 8 to 10 minutes. Drain and peel the eggs gently under ice water to get the shells off easily. Boiling the eggs for four to six minutes gives you soft-boiled eggs, and eight to ten minutes gives you hard-boiled eggs. These times are based on your elevation, the type of egg, type of heat, time of day, season of the year, direction of the stove, number of cats in the house, and whether or not these eggs are for company, and if you are running short of time. (laughs) Instant Pot is the best way to boil eggs. Seems to be the best way to do a lot of things. Instant Pot's amazing. It's so good. They don't even sponsor it, but I I agree with this message. Instant Pot. Do you guys have one? Yeah. It's awesome. Great. Well, we have Cuisinart or whatever, but same deal. Electric pressure cooker. Yeah. Have you done eggs in it? No, because I don't eat them. No? (laughs) Egg salad is the best sandwich in the world. She doesn't eat eggs. I don't eat them as part of my diet. Dave is Dave. (laughs) (laughs) Dave does not have opinions about food, (laughs) it seems like. No, Dave's opinions about food are yes. Yeah. But do I have to make it myself? Yeah, yeah, yeah that is exactly what I expect. He will eat a tray of, of deviled eggs, but he will never make them. He's a really good cook. He is. Just would rather not. Dave, mm-hmm. when you listen to this, please go make us some spider cookies. <laughs> Ashlyn, where would RNA polymerase attach? Oh. I was so amazed that this was one of the yeah. predictive results. So I it's imagine exam season. it had to have been a question or yeah. something that came up in a very popular exam because there's no way that this is something that people are just randomly Googling. I don't know. I've randomly Googled very similar phrases in the recent past. Okay. Well, yes, but yeah. there's no way that enough people right. are doing it. Okay. So the short answer is at the promoter sequence. That is where RNA polymerase would attach. And where is that? <laughs> so basically, transcription is where uh, if you're going to transcribe uh, a gene, it means that you're going to copy it so that it can be used to make a protein, which is very important for the functioning of cells and bodies. <laughs> so for transcription to happen, the enzyme that synthesizes RNA, which is known as RNA polymerase, uh, needs to attach to the DNA close to whatever gene is going to be transcribed. Promoters are sequences of base pairs that are just ahead of that gene. And they have specific sequences, um, things like response elements and uh, and whatnot, that allow the RNA polymerase to attach really securely right there and tell it this is where you should start. Cool. But we can't do that during daytime, during Ramadan. <laughs> well, we can. Right. We can. Not everybody can. Yeah, we're not, uh, we're okay. not talking meiosis here. Can you marry yourself? (laughs) (laughs) Not during the daytime, during Ramadan. (laughs) That's going to be my answer for everything now. (laughs) Uh, So a a lawyer out of the U.S. actually looked into this, and the answer is yes. In the strictest legal sense, there are no laws in at least – and this applies only to the U.S. There are no laws in any of the 50 states that expressly prohibit marrying oneself. So, yes. Because there was a lady who got in the news relatively recently for trying to marry herself because 
uh she she had good reasons it was like well nobody ever else is gonna ever be as good to me as i am so should <laughs> yeah do this so this follows a trend it's called sologamy oh god and it's about elevating your relationship to yourself and and taking care of yourself and and promoting your putting yourself first and and all of those self-care things to the next level so your relationship to yourself is higher than any other mm-hmm. relationship there so it, it's a trend that people want to do so okay and it yes it, it is not illegal to do it However, none of the 50 states recognize <laughs> marriage that only includes one person. So to have it to to be legally married to yourself is not something that you can be. So this is a bit of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, you can make that commitment to yourself, make a profession in front of your friends and family, the statements and all of and the commitment there. Um, but you won't get any of the benefits like a state tax in that from being married to yourself. However, you can marry yourself while being legally married to somebody else because it won't incur any anti-bigamy or anti-polygamy laws. Yeah. So you can go ahead and, and marry yourself. However, depending on your level of commitment to yourself and your concurrent level of commitment to your legally married partner, <laughs> it may be considered um, adultery. Depending on, <laughs> um, he this lawyer kind of left that open and saying, you know, think about how much time you're spending with every relationship. So what I'm hearing, Lauren, is more legal than our wedding was because <laughs> there are no laws explicitly forbidding it. Yeah, uh, I thought it was very interesting that the lawyer made sure to point out that should you break this contract or commitment to yourself, you cannot sue yourself for breach of contract. <laughs> You know it would come up. (laughs) (laughs) So does that mean that contracts between a single person and themselves are valid? I didn't realize that you could have single party contracts. Well, it's it's valid in the strictest sense that it's not invalid. But but (laughs) but again, the challenge is, you know, could you take yourself to court and say I'm forced to pay said fine because that's what I set out in my contract, and the court would probably say. If that's what you feel you need to do, go and do that, but no one's going to take it out of your bank account for you. So so that's the idea here. So if you want to marry yourself as a way of showing your commitment to taking care of your needs, whatever it happens to be, go for it. Will you be recognized as legally married? No. Will you get any benefits or protections or anything like that? No. Those of us in the original 90210 generation... Call this the Kelly Taylor model of marriage. I've made my choice, and I choose me. <laughs> yes, perfect. All right, Jem. Why is my computer so slow? <laughs> oh. Needs defragging. I know this one. <laughs> it's, it's funny because uh, that's something that, uh, that Laura asks me all the time. <laughs> um, and uh, no, defragmentation is actually no longer the answer. Yes, I know. Uh, you know, way, way back in like Windows 3.1 days, hard drive fragmentation was a, was a major issue. Oh, every <laughs> Thursday night, run your defrag. <laughs> with uh, with modern, uh, modern disk management, you don't need to worry about that. There are, however, lots of reasons this might happen, but generally it's because your computer is trying to do too much at once. This is funny. Uh, this question, uh, I saw it and I'm like, oh, I'll just like dash off uh, an answer <laughs> off the cuff because like I, I can't answer this one in my sleep. Uh, but, it, you know, it is complicated and I always forget how much context I am going to want to provide, whether I need to provide that context or not. So, And remember that it is the last question. 
Yeah. So either your processor isn't up to the task, it's trying to multitask a bit too much, or more likely, I think, your memory is overloaded and you're ending up with a lot of page faults. Like a person, your computer only has so much space in its short-term memory. Unlike a person, it can keep track of more than five to nine things at once, but even so, uh, every once in a while, your computer has to shunt things out of memory and onto disk, which is comparatively very slow. The analogy is not perfect, <laughs> not, not even close, but you can think of it like your computer running out of space in its short-term memory so it writes itself a note. A page fault is when your computer tries to remember something, can't, and has to rifle through its pile of notes to try to find what it's looking for. <laughs> Sticky fell off the monitor. Anyway, if you're curious whether your problem is your processor or your RAM, you can open up a process explorer and eyeball your CPU and memory percentages. On Windows, hit Control-Shift-Escape. On Mac, hit Command-Space and type Activity Monitor, then hit Return. On Linux, well, if you're running Linux, uh, I'm sorry you had to sit through that tortured page fault analogy, and you can safely skip the rest of this segment. <laughs> Anyway, the reason that your computer is so slow is probably because you have a bunch of background processes running, uh, or a bunch of browser tabs open, which basically amounts to the same thing. If you're on Windows, check the tray icons on the bottom right, close basically all of them, and uninstall <laughs> as many of those utilities as you can. As a rule of thumb, when you're installing a program on Windows, always do the advanced installation, if available uncheck any sidecar software that it's attempting to install, and do not allow it to run automatically at startup. Run it if you need it, and then close it afterward. And never, ever, for the love of Loveless, never install any software that came with a printer. <laughs> also, run an ad blocker. Sure, this is on brand for me to say corporations are bad, advertising is bad, etc., etc., but there are plenty of good reasons to block ads, probably the least important of which is that serving ads is going to slow down your browsing. If you feel really bad, uh, whitelist some sites, I guess, but the way ads are served on the internet is generally quite unsafe. I'm not going to go into the details, but uh, you definitely should not be allowing some random third party to run arbitrary code on your computer. Sure, your browser should be sandboxed, but any dev will be the first to admit that everybody who writes software is bad at their job, and ads <laughs> are a prime delivery mechanism for malicious code. If you can't solve the problem by closing your browser tabs and killing some background processes and running an ad blocker, it might be time for, uh, for an upgrade. There are a lot of conspiracy theories about how Apple and Microsoft and whomever else is deliberately hampering performance on older devices when newer ones come out. And this feels true for a lot of people. But remember Hanlon's razor. Never attribute to malice that which is adequately explained by incompetence. Though, <laughs> uh, don't rule out malice. More generally, as faster computers or phones or whatever come out, Developers are happy, because that means we can rely on people generally having faster computers, uh, so we don't have to write code that's as good or as optimal. Oh, most computers have 16 gigs of RAM now? Well, don't worry about the fact that our word processor somehow requires 3 billion bytes to run. Uh-huh. <laughs> For 50 years, software developers have relied on Moore's Law, which is the idea that every year or so, the transistor density of an integrated circuit doubles. It's uh, tempting to try to think of this as every every few years, computers get twice as fast. But the thing is, it's not really true, and it's getting less true as the years wear on. 
Worse, developers often use Moore's Law, as I mentioned, to paper over poor design. Don't bother optimizing the code, just throw more resources at it. And unfortunately, this isn't going to get better anytime soon. Sorry, folks. So, I have some honorable mentions, questions that I didn't want to give the full treatment to, but uh, were kind of funny to see uh, to see pop up when I typed in why. Does anyone else have any honorable mentions? I have a couple of real stinkers. Okay. I'm going gonna, I'm mm-hmm. gonna to start with one. This is, uh, I think, the third question that popped up when I typed in why. Why is Caillou bald? <laughs> oh, you hate him so much. <laughs> uh, we actually have an easy answer to this, straight from the horse's mouth. The horse's name in this case being Chouette Publishing. Quote, Caillou was initially created as a baby of nine months. When it was time for him to get older, the addition of hair made him unrecognizable. So we decided that Caillou would never have any hair, and he went on to become popular as a little boy who is bald. Caillou's baldness may make him different, but we hope that it helps children understand that being different isn't just okay, it's normal. Unfortunately, Chouette does not have an answer to the second most common Google suggestion <laughs> relating to Caillou. Why is Caillou bad? <laughs> the prompt that I had put in was just how. So it gave me a couple of... There were worse ones for an audio format than how to tie a tie? Yeah. How to train your dragon. I could have answered that. I would have gone all through Pern. No problem. <laughs> the worst one, Howard Stern. Oh! oh. So a lot of my suggestions when I put in where was basically how can I pirate this thing? So it was where can I watch Game of Thrones? Where can I watch this movie? Where can I stream hockey? Uh, That was a lot of my results, no matter what the second word was. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of my results had to do with preparation of food. And I did search in incognito mode. So, I mean, anybody who knows me knows I search a lot of food on there. But... By just typing in can you with a space, uh, five of the ten answers were can you freeze various foods? When you type in can you with the letter F, all of them were can you freeze various foods? And when you type in can you with the letter M, eight of the ten suggestions were can you microwave various (laughs) foods? So people have a lot of food that they're concerned about going bad. And they really aren't sure how to cook food in general. Can you can? I did not get that at all. No. I can. (laughs) Yeah. So anyway, I wanted to talk a little bit about a couple of the things that came up. So of the first 10 results that I got, five of which were freezing, three of them were dairy-based. So a lot of people have way too much dairy. So they wanted to know, can you freeze cheese? Yes. Can you freeze milk? No. Can you freeze sour cream? No, all of them. So, and and the answer to this is that, yes, you can, in fact, freeze them. I mean, really, you can freeze anything you want. <laughs> yeah. The question, the better question is, will it survive freezing in an acceptable way? Mm-hmm. That's what people are really trying to yeah. ask with this. So, with cheese, yes, but it will get crumbly. Don't try to freeze soft cheeses in that, though. So, the softer the cheese or the more airy, like the more bubbly the cheese, the worse it's going to be afterwards. With milk, yeah, you can freeze it, but it will separate. Yeah. So you'll need to like mix it, mix it all together afterwards. And also make sure you're not just freezing it in the container that it came in because it could well explode once all of the <laughs> water expands. And sour cream is, yes, I've honestly never thought of freezing just 
sour cream. I, I always thought no. So the answer is yes, but the texture will change quite a lot. It won't be smooth and thick and creamy the same way. So it'll be kind of grainy, but it won't be, oh. well, not not grainy, <laughs> not grainy, but just <laughs> it, it won't be that smooth, thick consistency. So they say that it works well in your cooking and, and baking and that, but if you wanted to put it on your pierogies, you probably wouldn't be happy. Some websites will say that you can beat in about a tablespoon of cornstarch to help bring the mm, consistency yeah. back together. I'm not sure how that would taste, though, like raw starch in- Cornstarch well, doesn't taste like much. I guess not, but it, I don't know. I, I'm really not one to like like goopy soups that are thickened with a lot of starch, and all I can mm. imagine it would be something like that. Did any of you ever have milk delivered in glass bottles? No. No. In northwestern Ontario, if you have your milk delivered in a glass bottle in winter, and if you don't get out there at 5 a.m., it will freeze, and you'll get this little poof of milk out the top, and yep. it'll push out the, uh, mm-hmm. the cap. At and least it, it wasn't exploding bottles. No, and it in no taste good after. So no freezer milk. <laughs> and if yeah. you grow up in northwestern Ontario, you pronounce milk milk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it shows up in bags in the grocery store. So I remember had, bagged milk from when I was a kid. We had yeah. bagged milk for here for a while. It was a weird foray into things. <laughs> and we're like, why do you need a pitcher? Just get a jug. And then we learned about jugs and life was better. <laughs> no, and we had the pitcher and then the yeah. little cutty thing on the magnet on the fridge. Mm-hmm, so you could mm-hmm. cut the milk. And that it came those, in three liters oval, at a time. Yep. Pictures, yeah. Three bags of, of Beatrice milk. Yeah, I, I remember that as a kid. We didn't have it here that long because we went from cartons to bags for some weird reason and then straight to, to plastic jugs. Uh, one, one of the uh, one of the questions that I uh, that I, I I saw a bunch of uh, why do people kiss or hiccup or yawn or dream? Mm. And the thing with all of these is like scientists don't actually know the answer yeah. to any of those mm. questions. Like there are hypotheses at various levels of support, but there's enough uncertainty that I just kind of left that alone because it would be super boring to say eh, maybe this. The most annoying question I ever had that I could not answer was we were supposed to just research a random question for a paper writing exercise in my first year of university. And so I decided that I would research something that I was interested in the answer for for myself. And I researched why do I get cramps in my calves at night? And Mm -hmm, there was mm -hmm. absolutely no idea. Like nobody knows why this happens or why it happens with such frequency to some people and not others. And there's like four or five different theories, but none of them are better than any of the other ones. Yeah, I had that for for years. I used to wake up screaming. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I have realized that uh, it most often happens right when I wake up and I stretch and I'm not flexing my foot at the same time. So if I do Mm -hmm. that, I will for sure get one. Science, come up with more answers. So what are we doing next month, Ashlyn? Next month, I have three back-to-back sales events. Jem is studying for the MCAT. Everybody has things to do. We're going to do a movie review. Woohoo! Sweet. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what movie yet. So I would like our listeners to send us suggestions. Tell us what movie, preferably available on Netflix or something, that we should watch and make fun of. If not, we'll just pick one. Sounds good to me. Also, if you choose bad ones, we'll just pick one. <laughs> I make no guarantees that we will choose one that is suggested by a listener. Kirk Cameron, I know you're listening. Well, thanks for joining me tonight, everybody. This was a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Good night, everyone. <laughs> Good, night. Good night. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. 
If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Jim Newman. Today on the show, 20 questions. Today on the show, 20 questions. Uh, I like that one better. Keep going, Jem. Just keep trying different voices. 20 questions! 20 questions? 20 questions. 20 questions. A little bit more gravitas, please. (laughs) (laughs) I just immediately flashed back to um, the the pee commercial. I I take directions from one person... Under protest. But from two, I don't sit still. Who the hell are you, anyway? No, I don't want to know. Let's go. (laughs) Keep going. Yeah, just... So good. Let's get this show on the road, Jim. Jesus. There are 453.592 grams in a pound, which gives a pound of cut cocaine a street value of (laughs) $40,823.28. And a pound of uncut cocaine a street value of approximately... $204,116.40. American or Canadian? That is Canadian at $95 a gram. Jim, don't point these things out. You're doing it to yourself. (laughs) What do you mean don't point these things out? This is my job. (laughs) That's why he gets his name in the end twice. (laughs) Lauren, how to tie a tie? This joke's gonna get old. No. no. <laughs> you, you just have such a serious Muppet look on your face when you ask. <laughs> how to tie a tie? I have a strong opinion about how to tie a tie. Jem has a strong opinion? <laughs> what? Did I ever show you uh, the Eldridge Knot? Or have you I, ever seen that one? I've seen the, oh, I watched the Eldridge I Knot love earlier. the Eldridge Knot. You would. <laughs> yes, I would. Does it have a lot of tentacles? No. no, it's not Eldritch. Yeah, it's I know. Eldritch. I know. Yeah, okay. it's Don't like explain the joke to me. It's very pretty. It's very foppish. <laughs> <laughs> and don't even try the whole it's bone or ivory. <laughs> no, nobody's no. buying that. No, it's not white. It's bleached teeth. Oh, Jim. <laughs> oh, this is this is why he dresses as he does. You're messed so. up. <laughs> it's a true story. So yeah, I thought this was. <laughs> 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 Why was that so funny? It just is. A quick pivot. <laughs> I love you. True story. Anyway, <laughs> this office is closed now. But uh, when I first graduated university, I was working at the uh, IT office uh, for Canada Safeway Limited, um, oh and I <laughs> was a big fan of um, Pepper Jack cheese. And uh, every once in a while, Safeway would have like. I think it was like a kilo of pepper jack cheese, like a massive amount on sale, uh, deep discount. Um, and it was pretty regular that this would happen. So every week I would run some scripts against our production database to figure out which stores in Winnipeg uh, had uh, had this this cheese on discount. And I'd take a trip on my bike out there and then I would cut it all up, uh, put it in little freezer bags and freeze it. And it, it did end up a little crumblier, but it was still perfect for baking. 
This so, has been Dairy Cast. With- <laughs> <laughs> oh, we Am I understanding cast. correctly that you needed a kilo of cheese every week? He didn't buy it every week. I didn't week. buy it every oh, week, okay. but every week I, w- I would check. At least once a week I would check to see if it was on sale. Okay. But honestly, like every two weeks I'd probably go through a kilo <laughs> of that stuff. I don't think you did. When I, I think uh, that's... Before Laura moved in, I... I uh, Ate terribly. No. Uh, when, when I grew up, like, if you were hungry, you had like a big slab of cheese, and sometimes with, you know, like a big slice of bread with butter on it. Yeah, that's what you yeah. do. The first meal he ever cooked me oh, God. <laughs> was was pasta and pierogies. Wow, at the same time. Uh, uh, did, pasta did, Didn't I do mashed Spaghetti. potatoes as well? No, you didn't. <laughs> no, no, it was pasta and pierogies. No, there's no, no vegetable. <laughs> fried onions on the pierogi. Yeah, I should have done fried onions. No, you weren't that advanced at the time, honey. You've come a long, long way. I'm just saying, starch is his friend. <laughs> Were you already in your dietitian program at the time? No, no, no. no not yet. That's what made But even me. still, I'm like, this is not what goes together. <laughs> but I like him enough to keep seeing him. Okay, so I have a problem with... This has nothing to do with the podcast. That's fine. Um, okay, I have new question. What side do you serve with dumplings? Because it's already a starch. It's already usually got vegetables and meat in there. I don't understand what goes with it. And so we end up having Broth. just like, you know, pierogies on their own or these dumplings that you get from Costco on their own. And it just doesn't seem like a complete meal and it upsets me. So to me, my question is, what is inside the dumpling? That's so, that because that's going to make a difference mm-hmm. with things. So we just got these ones called like bulgogi beef. Okay, uh, so are they more like a pot sticker? Is that yeah. kind of the thing? So that I would serve with more vegetables on the side because if there's any vegetables in there, it's going to be negligible, mm-hmm. and the vegetables will complement the starch and whatever proteins on the inside. If you take your starch-heavy dumpling, like a say a suet dumpling or like a cornmeal type dumpling that you would put in your stew or something like that, or even pierogi, that's just a full starch. So you need your protein and your veggie on the side mm-hmm. yeah. with that. But are they sandwiches? <laughs> <laughs> Only if they're pizza pops. <laughs> 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 oh my god that was the best conversation ever i forgot about that oh can we kill stop sandwich cast please <laughs> and olive is not a sandwich <laughs> i'm pretty sure i was on the not not sandwich side of that one <laughs> i think i called it a burrito <laughs> it's obviously a wrap it's not a wrap no 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 because then like that opens the door to things like caprese salad being called like stacked caprese salad being called a sandwich if you can just no 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 no. you can't take two sandwich vegetables and then make things no no just like like so like a lettuce wrapped sandwich that just has more vegetables on the inside is not a sandwich it is a handheld salad is sushi a burrito if it is not sliced yes can you not slice a burrito well you could is a sliced so, burrito so Laura, sushi? Laura is contending that once you slice a burrito, it ceases to be a burrito. It's a strange position that she staked out for herself. Okay, okay, no, no, okay, I'm going to walk this back. So sushi is sandwich-like, but because it is made of intact grain as opposed to a bread-type product made from milled grain, mm-hmm. I think it falls into a different category. Mm. It serves the same purpose, but it is not a sandwich. You don't believe in substrate independence.
Um, so I'm going to turn everything up a little bit. I will pay you cash money to never use that voice again. 